Hello, flash fictionistas, drabblers, hint fiction writers, postcard fiction scribes, six-word memoirists, and all lovers of miniature stories. I'm Brooke Warner, and we have a very special show today, special for two reasons. One, we haven't ever truly had a show focused on flash fiction, and we're celebrating my co-host and this week's guest, Grant Faulkner's new book on the subject of brevity, The Art of Brevity, which is brand new, just out, and everybody can go get it. Congratulations, Grant. Thanks, Brooke. Uh, it's true. We haven't truly focused on flash fiction, on right-minded, but you know, I was thinking about it, and we have had several writers on who I've admired for their short, short, short stories and their aesthetic of brevity, um, but then they went on to write novels, and I'm just going to list a few of them here. I first became acquainted with Lisa Cross-Smith through her short, short stories, and then now she's shifted into focusing on novels. And there's Charmaine Wilkerson, who was a guest on our show, and she published 200-word stories, actually, in my little literary magazine, 100-word story, before writing the novel Black Cake, which has gotten a bunch of awards, and it's ended up on Barack's reading list. And then Kim Adonisio, the poet, uh, she also wrote a couple 100-word stories that we published, and she even published one in the New York Times. And then Sarah Manguso, who we had on recently, um, she was really primarily known for her her essayistic nonfiction and elliptical memoirs that are created around, you know, little brief snippets of commentary and text uh, until she also wrote a novel. So I'm, I'm thinking here, the lesson here might be to write a novel if you want to get noticed. <laughs> There is truth in that. As we all know, um, publishers prefer to publish longer work and longer work gets more attention in the marketplace because of that emphasis. But flash fiction is becoming more popular, especially with younger writers and especially with online oriented journals and stories written in social media sized nuggets. Uh, I might even call it trendy. Mm -hmm. I think that's true. Yeah. Uh, And Per my opening, flash fiction is interesting because it's a short form, yet it spawned a lot of subgenres. So why is that, Grant, and how would you define flash fiction? Yeah, this is one of the things I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated by. I think of flash fiction like Russian dolls, you know, the Russian dolls that one doll nests into another doll getting smaller and smaller. And, and, and that's something I find interesting about the constraints of a short form in general is that it inspires even greater constraints. You know, it's like doing the limbo. How low can you go or how <laughs> short can you go in this case? Well, what's the shortest story you can write? But to answer your, your question about the definition of flash fiction, it's, it's conventionally uh, defined as a story that's a thousand words or less. But I sometimes don't like to think of the form in terms of word count. You know, it's its origin story. The anthologist, James Thomas, he he's still anthologizing. He has a great flash fiction anthologies if you want to check them out. But he's been doing this since the 80s and he kind of popularized the form. And he initially was calling them blasters, which thank God they're not called blasters. But he was in working on one of these anthologies. He asked his, his wife what he should call them. And, and right then, uh, this big bolt of lightning came down from the sky, literally, <laughs> And she was like, you should call them Flash. And I think that that metaphor really works, you know, in the sense that they are very sudden and very dramatic, you know, or many of the stories are. And it's the only genre that's named metaphorically like that. 
And that's why I ended up writing this uh, essay called 13 Ways to Look at Flash Fiction in Lit Hub. It's available online if you want to Google it. And I and I, I really kind of interpreted Flash through metaphors. And, you know, one of them, for instance, was a Flash stories like when you hit the brakes suddenly in your car. You know, so it's got that suddenness. Um, I uh, really like my writing teacher, Molly Giles's definition. She calls them fireflies, you know, these little flickers in the darkness. And, and the reason I like thinking about them... Uh, through metaphor instead of word count is that I think we write through a sensibility and, and flash because it's so compressed, you know, helps you pay, you know, keen attention to your sensibility of writing. But for you, Grant, the sweet spot seems to be a hundred words. So what lured you into that subset of flash? Yeah. So my, my own origin story with flash is that I was working on this big doomed uh, novel for like <laughs> 10 years off and on. And it was really becoming heavy to keep, keep, carrying it around basically. And a friend of mine uh, posted a link to some of his father's uh, short pieces, uh, Paul Strom. He wrote a um, hundred, 100 word stories as his memoir. And when I read his stories, I thought it was such a cool form. Um, and, and one, I mean, he, he said he, he, he said he thought of the form, like taking photos in a camera that doesn't allow you to like zoom in, like something with a fixed lens. So you have to like, fit your story into this kind of the, the confines of one space. And I thought his stories were, it was like a little Kodak carousel, you know, where you're, you're flipping through snapshots of a person's life. They were all these, in some ways, little moments, but significant pivotal moments in his life. And, and the form just allowed him a different lens on his life. Like if he was writing a memoir, it might have a kind of a bigger, you know, narrative trajectory or different themes that grew throughout the, the memoir, but, but by writing in a hundred word story snapshots, he could, he could focus on those really tiny, but telling moments. Uh, so I started writing them as a break for my novel. And, and then th this is the one thing I'll, I'll caution, caution listeners is that, is that if you write hundred word stories, you'll get addicted to them. <laughs> I've talked to a number of people I've who got addicted mm -hmm. to them. Yeah. And I got very addicted to them, uh, to the point that, I mean, they were a really nice break for my novel and they were creatively nice because I could write them and I could send them out and get them published. And so there was a sense of completion and satisfaction and the gratification of getting something published instead of waiting 10 years for it to be published. So anyway, that's a long winded, I'm going to have a lot of long-winded responses to your question. I haven't learned brevity in my own speech, but I have learned it on the page. Well, tell us more about the book. What inspired you to write The Art of Brevity? You know, once I started uh, writing the 100-word stories, I, I started a 100-word story journal with some friends of mine. And, um, you know, I've been thinking about flash fiction and writing it for a long time. So one year, Camp NaNoWriMo uh, came around. I think it must have been, you know, 2017 or 2018. And I just decided it was time you know, to kind of collect my thoughts on the flash fiction aesthetic. And I had written a lot of articles about it and been on panels and taught classes. And around that time, I read a quote by, by Roland Barth, the French theorist. And, and he, but he said, he said, is not the most erotic portion of a body where the garment gapes. <laughs> and, and back to metaphors, I thought that that was like the perfect uh, metaphor for flash fiction. And that's because a story is told in, in glimpses and in tantalizing hints. And it creates this really interesting suspense because there are a lot of gaps in a story that the reader has to fill in. So flash fiction, more than other forms, is a collaboration with the reader in that the reader has to take the hints and imagine the whole story 
in a way that novels don't require because, you know, novels can be more comprehensive. So I really just wanted to put words to this, this very different aesthetic and also shows how it offers a different lens on life. Like I was talking about with Paul's story, you know, it, it affords a different kind of storytelling and then different stories in the end. Yeah, I really love it too, because the way you were talking about him, it's like, it's also a different kind of container, which is so important, right? Yep. For container, sorry to interrupt. Container is a word I use a lot for this. Oh, good. They're all different <laughs> sizes of containers. So I'm glad you picked up on that. Yeah, that, that makes but another great metaphor. <laughs> but going back to novels, I'm curious about your very contrasting forms of writing. Like, do you think that writers need to have different dispositions in order to write the novel versus a micro length story? It's an interesting question because I'm I'm now a, you know kind of somewhat schizophrenic writer in that I you know a lot of forms uh, speak to me and that I'm involved in and um, you know I like reading and writing big messy novels and I like reading and writing these precious little stories um, and I think you know my in, in the end my answer is that different stories require different approaches you know it's not like one is better than the other there's just different ways to go about it but I do think that there is something to the fact that writers you know have different dispositions for different lengths and. And, and when we first started 100-word story, the journal, we invited a bunch of, you know, well-published writers to contribute 100-word stories. And these were writers who had written long, you know, novels and stuff. And several of them wrote back to me and they said they tried and they just couldn't do it. And I actually couldn't do it to start either. Most of my early attempts were like 150 words. And, and Paul, he told me, he's like, no, 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 you got to get them down to 100 uh, that's part of the discipline and your story will, will be better once you get it down to a hundred. And he, he was right in the end. And, and it's because like writing these pieces, it's, it's largely, you're not, you're, you're editing them more than you're writing in many ways. And I think in that process also, I really did train myself for a different type of writing, you know, and I think that that's, it's, it's, maybe one part about disposition, but it's largely about training yourself. You know, like the more I practiced writing hundred word stories, the more easily I could do it. Like, the, like if you asked me to write a hundred word story right now, I would likely have a first draft that's either 90 words or 110 words or somewhere in between those. Um, whereas in the past I might've had 170 or 80 words. So, yeah. So I think everybody should give it a shot in part because you, you do learn those um, editing skills and it, it just, it just, makes you pay so much more, you know, close attention to your stories and every element in your story. Well, that's what I, was, I mean, it's obvious 100 word stories or 100 word stories, exactly 100 words. But I, I do think it's intimidating. Yeah. I, and what do you do when you have, you know, like 101 words or 102 words and it's perfect and you can't <laughs> find a place to cut a word? It's, you know, it's a little bit like a, a, um, a Rubik's Cube, or at least the 100 word story is. If you're writing up to a thousand words, like the longer flash, it's, you've got, you know, you've got some more flexibility there. But with 100 word stories, you know, I feel like it's like, you know, I, I was always bad at Rubik's Cubes. <laughs> It's not better on the page with 100 word stories, but you know how you'd like, you know, turn it around to get all the white squares on one side, but then you'd mess up the other side, you know, with blue. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so it's a little bit like that. Like when I'm writing a 100 word story, I, you know, sometimes it's 97 words and then I'll try to edit it up to 100, but I'll end up with 103 words and then I'll have to edit it down, but I'll end up at 94 words. So it's partly that it's almost like a, a little game, you know, that you're figuring out the puzzle of your story. But, but when I said that it requires you, you know, you just pay, it's like looking at your story under a microscope. You're noticing every word in 
in a way that you just don't when you write longer pieces. So uh, even now, some of my my published pieces, I'll I'll read them and I'll I'll, I'll find a word or two that just bug me to no end that they're still there. Mm. You know, it's just a tiny little bit flabby. But anyway, yeah, I've learned a lot about writing by writing short. Oh my gosh, I can imagine. Well, so what gives micros their power? Is it language? Is it silence, structure? Because I've heard you mention that what's most interesting is what goes unsaid, which is lovely and thought provoking. (laughs) What do you mean by that? And how does what goes unsaid enter your own work? Like, how do you understand the power of that silence? I think all those things you listed give, you know, these little stories, their power, language, silence, structure. There's a kind of interesting lyricism that I think uh, the stories draw out. But but I really am interested in those, you know, the more muted aspects of the stories, the things that go unsaid, the drama of what goes unsaid. And, you know, I think, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, when you're working on a on a short, short story, you're, you're not just working with the text on the page. You're also working with the gaps, meaning like what's left out. It's, it's, it's a form that's more evocative by design. And I think the best way to describe this is actually um, a lot of people who've taken writing workshops and stuff have heard about Hemingway's iceberg analogy, where he says, to write a short story, an iceberg has only 10% of it that shows above the surface. And then there's 90% of it that you don't see. But the author, in knowing what that other 90% is, can leave it out, but the reader will, will somehow feel that. And I think that that's the way that really works with flash fiction is you, you really just because it, the, the stories are so short and the, you don't have many words to work with, those words have to do extra work. And so the, the silences and the gaps have to have to somehow be evocative, you know, so you're, you're working with words, but you're working with with also the, the gaps in a story. And I, I think sometimes like, you know, a novel is like this big southwestern city, you know, you're able to expand in, in all different directions and not to worry about running out of land. But the flash fiction is like this little city built on a cliff or on an island. And so you have to think about, you know, every part of its structure, and you have to be really keenly attuned to the space you have and how you want to use it. Hmm. Yeah, it's, it's lovely to hear you talk about it because you're so passionate about it. And, um, and I wanted to also share with you, like a lot of my novelists and memoirists have sort of dabbled into flash fiction and got addicted, you know, just like you Uh said. Um, But one of the things that some of them have brought up as as a kind of an agitating point, I guess, is about plot, right? And Mm. how does plot fit into flash fiction? Um, So I think for a story to be a story rather than an anecdote or a slice of life, it has to have a change. So Mm -hmm. do flash fiction stories have to hold change? Or how do you define plot in such a short work? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. And I think um, sometimes those like me sometimes who want to not think about plot so much, I think that these little forms, these little containers can allow you not to think about it too much. But I think you're absolutely right. I think uh, most of the stories I've written and most of the stories I read for 100 word stories, they all do have a plot. It just operates in maybe a little bit of a different way. And I think of um, Lydia Yuknovich, who we had on Right Minded and and when she was on, uh, she and I bonded over the a shared love of the author Natalie Sorrow. And Lydia said that in reading Sorrow, she learned how to write for the intensities. And I thought that was a really kind of nice reinterpretation of plotting a book mm. is that you're writing for the intensities. And that really resonated with me because I realized that that's what I do when I'm writing flash fiction. I write for the intensities. And I actually thought I'd read a story. Yay. And see, um, <laughs> it's a hundred word story and it's in my book and I, I'm, I do a commentary on it um, in relation to plot. And the reason is because if you read this, uh, it's not like plot is screaming out at you, but I'm going to, I'm going to say, 
some of the plot points are, how there is character change. So this is a story, first story in my book, Fissures. It's called Castings. So here goes. A resistance to spontaneous modes of imagination, a disdain for sultriness, tattered underwear. Every marriage has its own legalities, and these were Anthony's claims for divorce. Sometime, long ago, they believed in something that rhymed with galactic. Now, if gossip columns about ordinary people existed, they would have reported him howling at the moon. In one last attempt to save their romance, he asked her to get high and lay on the grass. She held a grocery list, stared at him with a survivalist determination. He saw teddy bears, grasshoppers in the clouds. The worms beneath him abandon their selves. And just to kind of explain where the plot is in this story, just in case people maybe didn't hear it or have questions about whether a plot exists, <laughs> you know, about about 60% of it is actually just describing the relationship, kind of setting the mood. And then uh, the action starts with, with his character need, which is asking his wife to get high and lay on the grass with him, to be like wayward, to get out of the structures of their lives. But she's holding a grocery list and uh, she, you know, with it, and she's holding it and looking at him with the survivalist determination. So she's turning down. She's not, she's the conflict. She's the obstacle there. or not realizing that he has that need. And then the denouement or the ending is him sitting there high on the grass and looking at teddy bears and grasshoppers in the clouds. And then the last line, actually, the worms beneath him abandoned their selves. Castings operate. That's what worms skin or, you know, people buy castings to fertilize their gardens. So I would argue that there are several layers of character change going on there and several layers of action. But I didn't think of that plot when I was writing it. I was writing to the intensities like Lydia mentioned. Well, and it just reminds me of poetry too, you know, the how you have to pay such close attention and it, it it really evokes a different sensation. You know, I just noticed that in my body when you were reading. So it's uh it really is a lovely form. Yeah, thanks. It's it, I always say that that especially the hundred word stories, they're you know, I'm kind of a frustrated poet. <laughs> um, I'm a prose writer in general, but but these stories are my poetry. They allow me to to write, I think, uh, a little bit more in a, with a poetic sens sensibility and with uh, a lyricism. And, you know, so they are, you know, a type of prose poetry for me. Well, and you said, I mean, there's a, that, a blurry line between those two things, between the flash and the prose poetry. And um, you told me that people obsess over it. I mean, it's your world. And yeah. I found that really curious. So what is your take? You know, is it a worthy conversation even? People love labels. They love categories. And so um, they often do question like whether this is a story or whether it's a poetry. And and the best answer I've always heard is that it is, you know, what you call it. If you call it a poem, it's a poem. If you call it a story, it's a story. And when I teach uh, this, I always do this little trick on the students. I'll have them read Robert, the poet Robert Hass's um, prose poem about a body, which is very, very much like a story. Think of it like a poem. And then I'll hand out one of my very, very prose poemy stories and have them choose what's the poem and what's the story. And almost, you know, inevitably all of them make the wrong choice. <laughs> like they're not technically wrong, but it is like what the author calls it. And so Robert Howes calls his about a body, uh, a poem, and I call my prose poem a, a story. So I, I don't think it's a big deal. I think, um, you know, again, it's about, it's just people's need for labels and categories and definitions. 
Well, I like that, though, because normally we say that art is in the eye of the beholder. But in this case, you're saying the author gets to choose <laughs> as it should be. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, what do you think about working with limits? French Olipo writers felt constraints could be freeing, um, that overtly imposing them as a way to acknowledge the constraints on writing everywhere. Do you find limits similarly freeing? Yeah, I think uh, that is one of the key joys and sometimes frustrations with the form. You know, if you've ever written a tweet, sometimes you just want some more characters or words to fully express yourself. But on the other hand, those constraints, uh, I think they put a really interesting pressure on you as a writer because you have to scrutinize, you know, each word and each sentence, as I was talking about. And it's kind of like a sonnet or a haiku or a lot of different poetic forms that have rules once you have those limits, you have to start thinking differently. And I think NaNoWriMo, you know, it is its own type of constraint also, you know, but it's more about time, writing 50,000 words in just 30 days. But that time pressure, you know, changes your creative process, that constraint changes things. And and so the same thing happens with, with writing within a word count limit is on one hand, it's, it's restricting, but it is also liberating. And it also uh, forces you to to think differently. And, and that's really one reason why I love writing flash fiction is the way that it forces me to think about storytelling differently. Hmm. Well, you just mentioned Twitter. Um, you've written, uh, Flash allows literature to be part of our everyday life, even if we are strange, multitasking creatures addled by a world that demands more, more, more. And when people talk about Flash, they often mention the modern short attention span. So what do you think about the attention span angle? Can you make more demands on the reader in Flash compared to longer forms? Yeah, you know, you mentioned earlier that the Flash is getting trendy, and I can't believe its growth in the last 10 <laughs> years. You know, when we started 100 Word Story, I felt like we were one of 10 or 20 uh, flash fiction journals online, and, and now it seems like there's 100 or 200 or more, you know. And so, so the form, you know, it is internet friendly, you know, and so I don't think it can be denied that part of the trendiness is due to the internet. You know, you can post a whole story on a Facebook post and, and, you know, you can tell a story through a series of tweets or, or even just one tweet, you know, and they can be read quickly. But that said, I, I really think that they, this is like where they are a little bit more like poems. Like, even though they can be read quickly, I think they demand to be read slowly uh, like poems because of all those nuances and layers that they have in them. So, you know, my answer is that yes, because flash is so friendly to the internet, you know, reading stories can become part of the fabric of an ordinary day. And I love when I do that um, and have a story that I can just take a little break uh, with, but yeah, people shouldn't read them with just their short term memory or by skimming them because they do demand attention. Well, Grant, we've come to the final question uh -oh. in today's interview. Uh, do you think that writing and reading Flash has changed the way you see life? You know, it has. I think uh, I make this um, argument in the book that that an aesthetic is an existential position in, in, in essence. Uh, and we all kind of define that existential position, um, you know, individually as authors. But one thing that it's given me it's just what I was talking about with, with Paul's memoir, you know, it's really helped me pay attention to these uh, smaller things in life. These, these really small moments that are significant enough for stories. And then flash allows that story to, to be told. So, yeah, it's just, I think it's just made me more observant. And as I said, it's, it's, it's helped me notice things in, in, in a little bit of a, a different way. And it's helped uh, attune myself to those, those kind of um, the moments where things go unsaid that, that drama and tension. 
Well, it's a beautiful testimony uh, for the forum. So thank you, Grant. And hey, thank you for being a guest on Right Minded today. (laughs) It was fun. Thank you for those great questions. We'll be right back after this short break with today's book trend. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, hey, Brooke, for this this week's book trend, uh, I wanted to talk about a funny thing that happened to me when I went to my wife Heather's holiday party. And the party occurred, you know, right as the new uh, artificial intelligence bot in town, ChatGPT, was released. I think this was like early December. And and Heather works for a tech company, so everyone was, was just buzzing about it. And I thought, oh, this is just a tech thing. I don't really need to think too much about it, except, except that it became not just a tech thing. A lot of people are talking about it, and it's a harbinger of the future. And it has implications for writing and the teaching of writing and publishing and a bunch of stuff. So even if you're not into artificial intelligence, I think you'd better pay attention to this. Yeah, and I'm paying attention. Uh, I'm hyper aware that AI is becoming more and more of an issue in publishing because of things like AI narration, AI generated art and illustration, uh, AI generated text, uh, and Google and Apple have already started to support AI narrated audiobooks, as we've talked about in a previous trend. And you might notice that sites like Medium now offer AI narration of their articles. Well, just so listeners know more about ChatGPT, the tool that was developed by a company in the artificial intelligence sector. We have that now in our artificial intelligence sector. Uh, <laughs> the company is called OpenAI, and it lets you type questions to which the chatbot gives, you know, very conversational if somewhat stilted answers. And the bot remembers the thread of your dialogue um, using previous questions and answers to inform its next response and its answers you know the way it works is its answers are derived from these huge volumes of information on the internet so you know it's it's not a robot or not quite a robot and it's not human not yet um but (laughs) but it can be creative and its answers can sound you know authoritative and human although you know it sometimes gets things wrong and it's interesting because at the party several people made comments like this is wonderful because we won't have to worry about doing this troublesome thing called writing anymore and then and then one person asked me if i was excited by it for my own writing and i said not really and he he presumed that i might like to use um it in moments of like writer's block or to get ideas and and it turns out chat gpt can actually provide suggestions and prompts to help writers overcome writer's block and generate ideas uh, personally I'm not really quite ready to hand over my creative process to a chat bot, but you know, maybe I'm missing something. (laughs) I don't know. Well, maybe we're all missing something because the technology is moving super fast. Uh, Canva, which is really popular with authors, already offers AI-generated art as part of its service. So, I mean, and I, I'm like, that's kind of cool. But I think a lot of designers and illustrators are horrified. Um, you know, so Notion already has built-in AI writing assistance. Microsoft already uses AI in Microsoft Office. So I've heard that you can, I haven't tried it yet. And I'll probably, you know, like everything, I'll, I'll 
adopt it like really, really, really late, probably in <laughs> 10 years. Um, but <laughs> I've heard it can write a poem uh, and, and a short story, uh, maybe a bad poem, certainly probably a bad short story. It doesn't exactly know anything, right? Because as you said, it's just trained to recognize patterns and it takes all this stuff from vast swaths of text harvested from the internet. Uh, so, but in those stories, I mean, I, of course, listened to something on the daily about this and um, Michael Barbaro tells it to tell a story and the story was pretty silly, but then it could improve upon itself. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's hard for me to imagine um, real writers wanting to use a tool like this, serious writers. Uh, but I can absolutely imagine that a lot of kids are going to use it to cheat on their English homework. <laughs> Definitely. Um, I feel sorry for teachers actually with this because I'm curious if chat GP can pass the famous imitation game that computer scientist Alan Turing proposed way back in 1950 as a way to gauge intelligence you know and so the basic question is is can a human conversing with a human and with a computer tell which is which and I read one reviewer who who asked chat GPT is it easier to get a date by being sensitive or being tough and, and GPT responded, some people may find a sensitive person more attractive and appealing, while others may be drawn to a tough and assertive individual. In general, being genuine and authentic in your interactions with others is likely to be more effective in getting a date than trying to fit a certain mold or persona, which, you know, isn't bad advice, right? <laughs> yeah, it's hilarious. I mean, the other thing I heard on the daily was that people are using it for therapy. And I'm like, mm. <laughs> I think I'll get my advice and therapy elsewhere. Um, You know, even if it doesn't write great poetry, it might someday. Um, We we don't know. What we do know for sure is that it's going to change the world, right? Uh And it's going to affect writing-related jobs. And I read that it could potentially be used to generate articles, blog posts, and other written content. I think no doubt we'll start to see that very soon, which will be useful for companies and organizations that need to produce a large amount of written material, like news organizations and marketing agencies and e-commerce websites, things like that. The problem, as I see it, is that we're already wading through a sea of content all the time, you know, so here comes the tsunami, I guess. Yeah, you know, I actually just uh, recently read an article about the effects of chat GPT on writing related jobs, and it turned out that it was written by chat GPT. I think it might have been a joke, but I don't know. I didn't find that out until I reached the end and saw the byline, and it was a little bit eerie. So this is to note, though, listeners, we will tell you if we hand over right-minded to Brooke and Grant bots. Except <laughs> but maybe we already have, and maybe a bot is telling you this now. So, but, but either way, we're happy you tune in weekly to our very human conversations about creativity, life, robots, and storytelling. And please have your bot like us and write a review, tweet about us, and invite its bot friends to tune in. <laughs> we'll see you next week. <laughs>